Outrider podcast, Bad Business, is a six-part series about crime and detective fiction. I'm joined by a pair of shady figures, my friends Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. So come with us as we descend into the seedy underbelly of fiction, where charming crooks, hard-boiled detectives, and femme fatales are all up to some very bad business. Sorry. Welcome to the Outrider Podcast. Of course, I'm Jason Quinn Malott, and I'm here with a couple of associates, and we're uh, going to do a, a special series on, well, detective fiction, mystery, crime, but we'll get into that here shortly. I'm going to give a few remarks here, and then we'll get into finding out who our, uh, our associates are and why we're here. So during my second semester of grad school, I took a class called Bad Business that covered a swath of detective and crime fiction. It was taught by Keith Abbott. He's the author of uh, The First Thing Coming, Mordecai of Monterey, Rhino Ritz, and a uh, memoir of his friendship with Richard Brodigan called Downstream from Trout Fishing in America. Keith's class was the second time in my academic career that I'd, I'd encountered detective or crime fiction as a literature in academic study. The first time had been in Professor Tim Dayton's class on 20th century American modernists, where I encountered Dashiell Hammett's book Red Harvest, which I assumed Dayton taught instead of the Maltese Falcon so that people wouldn't sub in the movie for the book. In the years between Dayton's class and Abbott's, I had managed only to add some Raymond Chandler to my catalog of detective fiction. That's only because someone recommended it to me by quoting a line from Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely that went something like this. She was a blonde, the kind of blonde that would make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. Now, in Abbott's class, we read some good books by talented writers, but we also read some, let's call them less than original works by writers of dubious merit. I'll let you pass your own judgment on the list I'm about to throw out, although I don't remember everything we read for that class. We did read Elmore Leonard. Perhaps it was The Switch or maybe Gold Coast. I'm sure we read something by Chandler. I do remember reading Sue Grafton's A is for Alibi only because I remember us talking about her career as a screenwriter before she got her first alphabet novel published and how that experience affected her writing. I believe we read Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress, but any other writers we read, I don't really remember. One thing that did come out of these classes and a class on 20th century British science fiction was the idea that genre fiction can provide all the nuance, insight to the human condition, and depth of interpretation that so-called classic literature, with a capital L, can, and it can do it all while maintaining a ripping fast pace and some thrills to boot. The problem, of course, is that genre often falls prey to a certain rigid codification where following the rules becomes more important than creating well-rounded characters or even paying attention to more mundane but significant parts of the writing craft like language and point of view or focalization. In one work we discussed, it may have been Grafton, but I can't say for sure, the main character, who was also the narrator, entered a room alone and proceeded to give the reader a description of the disheveled state of her own hair, all without the benefit of a mirror. 
How did she see this? Did she pop her eyes out of their sockets and wave them over her head? No, this was unskilled authorial interference, something that is prone to happen when writers are more concerned with checking off the boxes of a formula than writing something original. For me, this is often the reason I avoid niche genres like mystery and science fiction, even though I'm a fan of sci-fi movies and television like Star Wars or Star Trek, Firefly, some of the Alien movies, the early Terminator movies, and so on. I keep Chandler and Hammett on my high shelf of revered writers. After the general fiction and literature section of the bookstore, of course, the two largest section are those mystery and sci-fi fantasy sections. If those aren't your thing, how do you wade through the formulaic bad writing, all the subclasses of each genre, to find the truly good writing? My personal interests are more in the general fiction category, so at least in that area, I don't mind wandering the aisles, picking up books, and reading a few pages. But I just can't seem to force myself to do that in mystery because, as a former bookseller, I know all the popular names, have heard some of them read, and have already passed judgment. It's kind of like getting bit by a couple of dogs, and even though there are dogs I like, that fear of getting bit again keeps me at a distance. In the general fiction category, at least, there are writers I know who are getting along well in their careers, and I can always pick up their new books, but put me in front of the mystery section, and I'm at a loss as to where to start and reluctant to waste my time, more so than my money, on a book that I'll never finish. Also, where do I start? There are hard-boiled detective stories, cozy mysteries. Could we call those soft-boiled detectives? Legal thrillers, suspense thrillers, spy novels, crime novels, police procedurals, forensic mysteries. There are mysteries with cat themes, mysteries with cooking themes, war mysteries, psychological thrillers, and so on. My own small collection of books that fall into this genre lean toward the hard-boiled detective style, probably because of Keith Abbott's influence. But my repertoire has remained limited to Hammett, Chandler, Wichita native Scott Phillips, whose excellent novel The Ice Harvest was made into a movie with Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton, and some fellow Naropa grads who studied with Keith over the years. One was Will Christopher Bear, whose books Kiss Me Judas, Penny Dreadful, and Hell's Half Acre feature the disgraced former cop Phineas Poe as he unravels a series of mysteries centered around a prostitute named Jude who stole one of his kidneys. And then there's Laird Hunt, whose early, more challenging work, namely The Impossibly, The Exquisite, and Ray of the Star, all heavily incorporate and make use of various mystery and noir tropes. And more recently, there's been Duncan Barlow, whose noir-influenced gritty hitman novel The City Awake just was recently released. So if you're interested, you can dig into the Outrider podcast archives and listen to my conversations with Laird and Duncan. Now, it was a desire to expand my repertoire of mystery writers and discuss the components and merits of genre that led me to reach out to Todd um, with the idea of doing this special series for the podcast. Now, I met Todd over a decade ago now, and when I worked at Watermark's Books, and Todd is an avid reader of the genre as well as a talented writer who has a novel that falls into this genre that he's trying to find a home for. As we chatted about the focus and direction for our conversations here, Todd forwarded me a a short, what should you call it, a treatise, an essay, a a, a, a flash of opinion um, by another associate, Paul, that briefly outlined what he saw as the motivations that drive fictional detectives. I think the impetus for this piece was part of Paul's response to Todd's recently finished manuscript that both he and I had read. 
Now, this short piece seemed like a good framework for discussing this genre, since we felt it would get us out of talking about the usual bookseller classifications and into a more writerly angle, which fits into the general focus of the podcast here, writers talking about writing and, and literary things. Now, for this episode, we'll get to know a little about uh, my two co-conspirators here, and we'll discuss the genre in general, our jury rig theory from Paul's comments, and uh, get you ready for our, our next episode on, on Raymond Chandler. So, first, Todd. Yes. Um, now, we, ha we have clandestine other day jobs that we don't talk about, but you are also a, um, have been a, a part-time bookseller for a number of years. How long have you been doing that? Part-time since the late 90s, I would say. And, you know, when I came to Wichita in the early 90s, I was a full-time bookseller while I was finishing up my uh, English creative writing degree at Wichita State. And right then on. when I got that uh, that job that... We we, we, prefer, we prefer not to <laughs> go go into depth about right contract killer shush then oh, sorry. <laughs> so part time since then and have you been writing that whole time or did you like I did kind of go through this fallow period after undergrad where you didn't write you found all sorts of other excuses to there have definitely been periods when I was not working on anything <laughs> and. You know, I wrote that novel, not the the novel before the one you were mentioning in your notes. Right. And that took me a long time. So I was working on that one. Um, before that, I wrote some short stories mm -hmm. just with my undergrad degree and sort of into my, I would say, into my early 30s. Right. And so, but there there have definitely been periods when I wasn't working on things. But you've been pretty solid and consistent for the last, what, decade or so? I would say yes. Cranking pages out and doing the th good. Yes. It's just uh, that struggle of being a, a new writer trying to find a home for it. That is definitely the case. And coming <laughs> up with a synopsis that will get me past the initial email. Right, right, of course. That's the hard part, man. And I suppose the first five pages. <laughs> Of the your, novel, of your the manuscript. first five pages are fine. We just have to get someone to acknowledge it besides the, me and Paul here. Um, so do you mind telling us, because this, um, this book will pop up in, in Paul's notes here. Um, you want to give us a little bit about the, uh, the book you're trying to sell, just in case, because I know I do have a few um, positioned so, so, listeners. <laughs> The title Pax and Romana referred to uh, my narrator's mm -hmm. uh, last name and sort of his spiritual quest, which he gets interested in Rome, and he remembers that he was going to be, you know, at an, at an earlier period in his life, he was working on something else. Right. And then he got, he got into politics, and he got into managing a bar and sort of got distracted that, about things. And so in the novel, he sort of... he. He comes around to a recognition that he wants to go in a different direction. Uh, now, as I put my revisions in, the title <laughs> was changed to the Rococo Publican. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. And good part of that is a, I picked up Rococo actually out of the notes that that you wrote down when you when you reviewed the mm -hmm. book because you said the the prose had a Baroque quality to it. And I think I was messing around trying to find a different title, and right. 
and I saw Baroque, and then I've started fiddling around with it and found Rococo in the mix, and it just... <laughs> and we've got some satirical commentary on one of our favorite political parties here in America. Right. And it almost sounds, it almost sounds like Repub- Republican, yeah. but it's Rococo-publican. But, you know, are they, are they loco? We don't know. Just a touch. Just a touch. I think we have inside. So, but anyway, the character is drawn into a, since he was a politico at an earlier point in his life, he's drawn into a uh, political crime story right. in the novel. So that's where we go with it. Cool. And, it and it does become a bit of a, there is that genre element to it. There's a mystery. Right, right. So when did you decide you were going to be a writer? What was the thing that pulled you in that direction? I would say when I was in high school reading The Great Gatsby and and Salinger. Right. And I started to really want to do it then. I would say Gatsby, as much as anything, got me going in that direction. So is Fitzgerald... St- one of your guys, or do you have who are who are your influences now? Who do you uh, kind of go back to when you're hurting for inspiration, or or need someone to, you know, kind of uh, unlock the uh, the mysteries of of being a writer? I definitely like the some of the crime novel people that we're getting ready to talk about. Um, Fitzgerald, not so much. I would say. Right of late, it's been the the British expat writer Lawrence Osborne uh, with uh, the Ballad of a Small Player and Beautiful Animals, and mm-hmm. so it's kind of a combination, I would say, of uh, the British contemporary British writing, American hard boiled fiction writing. Right. You know, when I was in my twenties, it was definitely Robert Stone. And okay. my writing now just doesn't have anywhere to go with Stone. It, you right, know, it's right. kind of gone away from that. It's more of a, it's got more of a satirical and comical element to it than, than Stone or really even Fitzgerald right, ever right. tried to do. Yeah, I know that it's kind of what happened with me. I started off with uh, Hemingway, and it just there was only so far you could push that with what I wanted to do, and eh, I went out other places. So, when did you first meet Paul over here? Paul was probably sitting at last chance having a beer, but <laughs> getting some difficult territory the, here. But this was in Manhattan in the late '80s, and I was going to K State by then, right. English major up there. So not only was Fecto hanging out in the same bars that I was, but we were in some of the same English lit classes and creative writing classes together, and probably uh, Heller's short story class, workshop, his yeah. short fiction class, was where we. And you're right. familiar. And oh, yeah. That's, that's kind of our, our giant uh, unifying thing here with all of us as we've been in uh, creative writing workshops with Steve Heller. And didn't you even work at Last Chance uh, yeah. back in the day? <laughs> really? Yeah, my last year. I don't think it's there anymore. Really? Rusty's? Yeah. They took something, it out. It took up it half knows. of Morrow Street. It's something else now. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's uh, find out from you, Paul. Who the hell are oh. you? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you were asking him questions to set him up. I just have to go on my own. Okay. Well, no, no. So, oh, you got questions for me. Well, yeah, it's okay. kind of the big thing. So, um, there's this big light shining on me now in my eyes, and I'm being right. interrogated. <laughs> so, 
Um, you were at, humor for you. You were at uh, you were at K State, which is how you met Todd over here. Right. Are you originally from Kansas? Yes, very much so. From Manhattan. From Manhattan, indeed. So you didn't travel too far. No, no, I didn't at all. Yeah, I was actually living in my parents' basement through most of college. Oh, that's the way to do it. And it was unusual back in those days. Yeah. yeah. Well, there were a few of the the local townies that did the thing. They sure did. <laughs> so, what got you into uh, to being a writer? Wow. Okay. So I guess I've always written stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably started collecting my short fiction when I was in the sixth grade. Uh, all of my stories sounded like Twilight Zone episodes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just always been. I mean, I knew I wanted to major in English. I knew I was mm-hmm. going to have, have the focus on creative writing. And I went on and did the MFA here at Wichita State. Right. Have never left the state of Kansas ever. That's and then true. you did. I have, I have left the state of Kansas. You but. did a PhD, right? No, just an MFA. No, just an MFA. Okay. Yeah, don't insult me. Well, you know that I, is. That I have is nothing a, against people with PhDs. It is a route to go. So is, we all. You just have an MFA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't want to insult people with PhDs. Oh no, that's, that's very you know, fine. If you have a PhD, Darren it's Dufresne's great. not here. He's all right. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> He's Doctor Dufresne. Yes. <laughs> So okay. what did you do after uh, after school? I mean, are you in position where you have a job you don't talk about? Are you uh, or are you just writing full time now? No, I I have worked as an investigator a lot. I was going to talk about that a lot to try to. I thought this was just a commercial venture for me. <laughs> um, I've I've sort of had a, a split uh, career. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time uh, teaching in English departments. Right. And the other half of the time, I have worked as an investigator. An investigator of what? Well. Uh, I, guess you have to go back to about 2003 time frame. I got interested in a, a murder case here in, in, in Wichita, an old unsolved murder case, and I wrote, started writing about it, and I realized that I was having a heck of a lot of fun doing that mm-hmm. in a sad kind of way. And so I was uh, teaching at Washburn University at the time, and, and I said, the heck with it. I went out and got a position uh, as a contractor, a government contractor working on uh, security clearance background investigations. Right. And so I actually spent seven years in that career, also worked as a private investigator at the same time. Oh, wow. And then went back to teaching, and now I've sort of looped back around where it looks like I'm actually going to get back out in the field at my even at my old age. So f- to be a, a private investigator in Kansas, do you need licensure? Do you, what kind of requirements do you have to go through? The, I was licensed, yes, there for, for a number of years, and you go through a KBI-type thing where you have to get some references and paying some money and right. not have any you know too serious offense in your background. Then there's some, some personal practical experience behind um, your comments here that you gave to Todd about the... Uh, the drive to fictional detectives, the drive for fictional detectives. No, I think, I, well, maybe to some extent, but this is more literary. Right. I think is more, more just pretty much thinking from a literary perspective. When you think about the character of the defect of the detective mm-hmm. or defective detective, I don't know. Um, I thought quite a bit about that. Right. Going back all the way through the sort of history of the genre. And so I think that's, that's more where this is coming from. Okay. Uh, real detectives, tend to be guys that are having a career and wanting to make money, and I'm, some of them may have you right. know, noble motives and some of them may not. Um, but this is thinking <laughs> about it from a standpoint of a, a point of view of a book or a character that you create. Right. So have you been a big reader of the, of the genre? 
no in the past or no and this... i think that's maybe one thing that we should we should acknowledge here i think we've all done quite a bit of reading in the genre but the mystery genre and the detective genre is one that tends to uh, attract really rabid mm-hmm. fans yes it does so there's very very likely someone who could listen to this who would who would have read more True. And we have. I mean, uh, there are mystery fans that are just, they know every writer and every detective that's come along. Right. And so I can't claim to have that kind of encyclopedic knowledge. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, th- knowing the genre, I guess, in, is, or knowing the genre in that detail as, as a reader is one thing. But, you know, as, as a writer, I'm more interested in the mechanics of it. And, and that's not necessarily you know, something that you need to be encyclopedic in your knowledge of it because there is a lot of, of formula to it. And, and that tends to be, like, a, like I said in the earlier comments, I don't like formula. It becomes predictable. When you, and I noticed this in a lot of stuff that I have tried to pick up. You, you can see it when it filters down into film. Um, you know, you... I was I was thinking earlier today about trying to work in a, a mention of uh, of uh, um, dead men don't wear plaid. Yes, which you know Steve Martin's you know seventies you know parody of of detective movies because there is you do a certain set of things and that'll get you where you want to go. You put a nice you know inventive twist on it. And you really don't have to pay attention to you know character motivations or or the art of of writing. You know, like with the thing about you know the character being in a room by herself and knowing what her hair looks like without a mirror there's <clears throat> but as a writer I'm, I'm more interested in you know what you want how can we take these things put them into interesting fiction you know and, and use them whether you're actually writing mysteries or not but also I want to find out those writers that Todd has knowledge of because he's a reader in the genre that's his thing he's knows how to pick out the good ones and which ones you know, tend to he just does. total crap. He I'm going to take his advice on that one. All the way back in the day, when yeah, when we were undergrads, he was the one everybody came to to get so, a recommendation about a book that had somebody getting killed in it. <laughs> he, was, he was sort of known for that. that it's true. okay to people, laugh on Mike, Todd. That's to, what we're here people for. People used to call you on the phone, <laughs> and you'd stand there and give them book recommendations. I remember that. Do not <laughs> that, is, that is true. I'm not making that up. That happened multiple occasions. So you are, of course, a writer as well. Um, what are you working on now? What have you been working on? I have not read any of your stuff, well, unfortunately. You certainly. I'd be glad if you would do that. Um, I did write a detective novel as well. Oh. And uh, finished it a few years back. And it was set against the backdrop of a fictional election and followed uh, someone who was a political operative. And then Trump happened. Right. And it somehow ruined the book. The book didn't make sense anymore. You know, in the the universe with Trump, the stuff I had in the book was sort of like small potatoes. Right. So I've gone back to it this year after being away from it for maybe a year and have revamped it to actually be in the... Hillary versus Trump universe. And so I'm on the edge of getting that completed and trying to send that out. So you say people are listening who might actually be. Yeah, I seem oh, to have good. a lot of, oh, of, of okay. listeners in California and, and spots on the coast in Alaska for some reason. Well, tell them. I, I guess they're bored in Alaska. Yeah. But oh, that, that'll go over well. Um, <laughs> well, they might be going, yeah, they're bored in they Alaska. Could be. I could, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, yeah, it, yes, that's the. It's All called right. Daughter Babylon. Daughter and Babylon. It, and it, uh, it, it starts off with this election scenario and a, and a fictional vice presidential nominee who has a very dark background. Oh, wow. And uh, then it gets very weird in the end, I think. That's my pitch. <laughs> so, so all this mention of, in your intro, not only Richard Brodigan, mm-hmm. but also uh, send-ups of detective novels and Paul's title, Daughter Babylon, just has me thinking of Brodigan's novel, Dreaming of Babylon, oh, yeah. which is Brodigan's send-up of detective fiction. Should and we throw that on the list? Maybe we should. <laughs> Bob Brodigan's a lot of See, fun. I it, would do that. It's fun. I mean, it's not his best book by any means, but it's still a fun book. And I just remember C. Card starts off the book and he doesn't have any bullets for his gun. All right. All right. We got something to discuss when we're, when we're off the air here. Thanks, Todd. Right. That's, that, we'll, everything will get livened up. There we go. So... Then who are your influences? Who are your guys? Who, uh, who do you go to when you're stuck or need inspiration? Or, Well, that's funny. I was thinking about it here as you were sort of, and Todd was giving his background too. I guess the, the pivot point for me probably would have been Thomas Pynchon's novel, The Crying of Lot 49. Really? Which is a detective novel. There's no specific detective. The, right. the protagonist, Oedipa Moss, isn't a detective. She's a California housewife. And uh, I was kind of, I have to admit this, I guess, kind of a snobbish reader Mm -hmm. in my graduate school days and would not touch anything that even got close to genre. (laughs) Isn't that strange? (laughs) And then I, you know, but I would study Gravity's Rainbow Mm -hmm. in a a class. And then one day I was in a bookstore and I picked up Crying A Lot 49 and it just clicked that genre was a tool that you could use. Right to do something with rather than uh, merely a formula that you had to adhere to. Right. And so to me, the, the books that keep me really interested in detective fiction, horror fiction, and any mm-hmm. kind of genre stuff tend to be the postmodern stuff. Right. Because they sort of explicitly mess around with the idea mm-hmm. of genre. Okay. So who were the writers? Uh, after pension? Yeah, after pension. I mean, who well, now do you kind of go to? Who's the who de- do you put on your high shelf of uh, in the detective category or any category? Oh, in any category. Well, any anything experimental. So Jeanette Winterson, okay, is is probably a big influence. Um, still, every time pension puts out puts out a book, uh, would be a big deal. Um, and then slipping over into multiple genre areas, someone like Truman Capote. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time really... Well, you know, I told you I tried to write a book about a, a nonfiction book, so uh, Capote was, was really influential there. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So how does that play into these... Were these comments that you, uh, that you sent to uh, Todd... Um, you do mention his his character Slade from uh, the book he's been working on. Mm-hmm. So were these particularly um, directed at um, that book? Yeah, I think we were both working on our books, and I was thinking about my first person narrator and your first person narrator, and I don't remember the exact 
context of the conversation, but we started thinking about the idea of detectives who drive narratives forward do it for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I, yes, and it probably should be noted that the first person narrator is a big, is a big part of, I think, our whole interest in this, in this genre. Yeah. I mean, you, you can get into some pretty interesting first person yep. narrators across this. So would you like to share some of the, uh, the comments here with us, read them out to our, our crowd? Well, I can just run over them. I, sure. Um, what I did was I broke down the motivational drive behind mm-hmm. the uh, protagonist, the detective. First person, could, it could apply to third person here too, I suppose. But the first one was the professional motivation, so you mentioned police procedurals, mm-hmm. those kind of subgenres, where it's the person's job. Right. Right. And so it is part of that sort of sense of duty to the job uh, that motivates the character to continue to try to solve the mystery. Right. A lot of novels bring in some sort of personal angle. So the first one's the professional, the second one is the personal, mm-hmm. where the detective is somehow. Uh, something has caught up in it that involves his own, his or her own story and right. background. And those two categories are great. But what I think what we were really driving at in our discussion was that we were really looking at a third category, which is sort of beyond an actual personal stake that the detective has and beyond the notion of a job. Mm-hmm. And we called that the existential. And that really was put down there, I think, with Marlowe in mind, with Chandler's Marlowe. Right. Because, yeah, he's a detective, and he, he, he plays lip service now and then to needing to make money and to have an, be, in, be in his job. Mm-hmm. And so he has a sense of duty that's, that would be sort of professional. He tends to have no personal stake whatsoever when he starts off in the books. And yet he just drives at these mysteries, drives at the plot, pushing the plot forward relentlessly. And it seems to be some sort of higher philosophical issue with his right. character that's going on. And so I think we kind of arrived at the idea that, you know, any of these modes are, you could do a great mm-hmm. worthwhile literary work. Right. But the existential is probably the one of the three that, that at least we were shooting for. Mm. Chandler's success and influence suggests that the existential tends to have the most mojo behind it. Literarily, anyway. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I've talked to mystery fans who, who don't like Chandler, who say his plots are messy and don't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And Well, I mean, I've been reading The Long Goodbye again because I know we're going to be talking yeah. about it, and it takes, it takes a while for that one, for the crime story to get going. Right. You're really just hanging around with with Marlowe and uh, Terry Lennox for the first 40 pages of the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're, you know, Lennox is a bit of a, uh, he's a mystery man, for sure. You're not quite sure what's happening with him. He's a drunk, but it, maybe he isn't a drunk. And there's not a, a body, there's not a crime story going on. Right. Yeah. So and who... Who has come along since Chandler to kind of fill that role that's, that's good, do you think? I like Michael Harvey uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Mosley's written some very good novels, I think. Yeah. Um, Access the bookseller, Todd. <laughs> trying to think, yeah, I mean, as far as who, who's picked up the, the... A lot of bad writers have picked up the hard-boiled. <laughs> We're talking about the hard-boiled... Yeah, yeah. In a in a way, I mean, it's we're because when I when I read uh, you know these comments, it kind of, and as I've been thinking about it, it kind of dawned on me that that really everything that falls into that mystery category, no matter what kind of subgenre or or twist it has, um, every character, whether he is a criminal or or an actual detective or a cop or something like that, is taking on one of these two motivations there's something that is there's a a crime uh, or uh, something it gets that classic motivation they they have something they want they want to understand they want to figure out and this person is out you know quote unquote detecting you know this solution and so i often wonder if you know if that's something that that causes consternation among the uh, uh the fans of of certain Subgenres. They think, well, this, yes, my legal thriller. It doesn't have anything to do with the hard-boiled detective. It doesn't have anything to do with you know Miss Marple and and you know Agatha Christie. But it does. There is. These are because that was the first thing I thought is like, why were you doing these classifications and not the uh, the the bookseller classifications along this? So. Well, I think that there is a, a definite split in the genre into two categories. Mm-hmm. This may just be me. The British school, or what one critic who I read used the term the ratiocinative detective novel. Where you I had not heard that. You can only go so far with that, though, because the Brits have picked up the American hard-boiled oh, style. Absolutely, too. it's just a name. Yeah. Because, essentially, first detective story was what? Well, Poe. are we talking about Poe? Poe, Murders in the Rue Morgue. He has a detective who's essentially uh, sort of a mm-hmm. uh, forerunner of, of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Right. And so the Holmesian detective story is the, the one that was established first, and mm-hmm. that would be, hence, the British mystery. You know, it's like calling a Petrarchan sonnet an Italian sonnet, I guess, right? And in that kind of story, think of, think of a Sherlock Holmes or, mm-hmm. or an Agatha Christie. You have a British society which is stable, right, in a good place, mm-hmm. bad, foul murder happens. The intelligent man, Sherlock Holmes, with his skills of intelligence and, and his professional and really just professional commitment to a good society, right, steps in, solves the murder, restores order. Right. The American school or the hard-boiled school comes along with Chandler and Hammett and Kane and those kind of writers in a Chandler novel, you don't have an orderly society to restore. Right. Everybody is essentially corrupt and on the take. And when you get to the end, I mean, there tends to be some sort of solution to the mystery. But I don't know that Chandler's any better off or Marlowe's any better off. You find out what happened, but order probably hasn't been restored. Exactly. So that's, to me, where the existential comes right. in. I have trouble thinking of a uh, ratiocinative detective novel mm-hmm. a la Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes where the motivation is really existential. Right. 
and I could be proven totally wrong by that. Someone could could do it, but right. these were th- these uh, I think were made with the the sort of hard boiled school in mind. Right. So then, what you could say is, you know, Poe gives us the detective story. Doyle gives us Holmes, and this what was it? Ratio. Ratio sedative. If I'm even pronouncing that right, it was a, it was a critic, an Italian critic named Stefano Tani, who wrote a book way back in the '70s called The Doomed Detective, <clears throat> which which I read. Many years ago, who where Had I sort you of read got that this? One? I've not read that. It's probably not, probably rather obscure. Okay. But it, it, he basically his point is to to talk about the detective novel and postmodernism, right? And so that's where he sort of gives this history and breaks it down into the. Okay. So then you give us then in the American school because there's not that <clears throat> rational order to society. You have your hard-boiled detective. So it seems kind mm-hmm. of logical that that would then, why not just get rid of the detective and write about the crime? Well, that's where we're going with uh, Scott Phillips, Jim Thompson. and Right. So the, I mean, I mentioned the long goodbye earlier. Mm-hmm. If we were to take the noir approach, which is like the Phillips approach or the Jim, T- Jim Thompson approach, right. Terry Lennox becomes the speaker in the novel. Mm-hmm. It's uh-huh. his story now rather than Marlowe's story. Right. And so you've got a different, you have a different delivery, I think, mm-hmm. even with a first-person narrator, because you, you tend at that point to be, you're hearing from the transgressor, and some of the things out of his mouth are going to be, um, uh, I don't know if you want to say rationalizations. Right. You're just getting into a whole other territory. Right. But he still is essentially trying to solve a, a problem or a mystery for. It could be that, or he might just be. You might just be by the fire, and he's telling the tale of how he did what he did, right? Rather unapologetically, in some cases. <laughs> There's the whole James M. Cain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, branch of this too, and actually, uh, the term film noir, right, which we probably would want to talk about. Really, if you if you get to some serious film critics, I think that they point to those kind of narratives as being the pure noir narrative. That's not a detective story. Mm-hmm. Postman always rings twice, and I don't, I'm trying to think of what some other Kane novels are, but they essentially follow uh, an average man who's sort of pulled double into indemnity. Norm. There you go, excellent. They get pulled into this strangers on a train. That could be. Yeah, could be. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I just think of Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, but they're all, they all sort of follow that same pattern mm-hmm. where an average guy usually gets attracted by a wicked woman right. into this sort of criminal underworld and he sort of is, is pulled down. Mm-hmm. I think Kane's famous quote was what, I, I write about the dream that comes true, somehow a horrible fate. Hmm. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing that wrong, but... Um, so, so to, to some, in some ways to look at it, that's sort of the essence of the hard-boiled story that actually precedes right. Hammett and Chandler. Mm-hmm. That's just that story of a corrupt world and what it does to the, the people in it. Right. So who do you think, uh, or is it possible to, to blend two or all of these? Who's, who's doing that, do you think, that's of, of interest? I'm wondering about, as we were, as we were setting this up, I was thinking about Doc Sportello in, in Pension's novel, yeah. The Stoned Detective. He's kind of trippy, 
and I don't know. It's been a couple of years since I read that. I know we're going to review it. We're going to read it and talk about it down the road. But, I mean, he's sort of honorable in a way, mm-hmm. but he gets there. He doesn't get there quite in the straightforward manner that, say, Marlowe would. Right. Yeah, that certainly picks up on a hard-boiled tradition and does. The other thing that you get into with 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 Pynchon or James Elroy, for example, Elroy's detectives, you get into that third-person omniscient narration, and it's a different... They seem to go there from uh, a different angle because you're getting the... You get the point of view of the criminals mm-hmm. as well as the detective. Sometimes in those books, you not only know what the detective is doing and thinking, but you know what the criminals are doing. Right. And the detective might be a step or two behind mm-hmm. because very often, at least they're supposed to follow certain rules in the way they go about things, and the, the crooks don't follow the rules. Right. But that's the brilliant thing about being a crook. <laughs> But you get into the the other thing that's interesting about the uh, the pension or Elroy Elmore Leonard is they get the it's the American sound, mm-hmm. and so the, the the character's innermost thoughts they they do some interesting things with the right. the voice. How, how tight are those subgenres that you use in the book business, as far as a police procedural versus a cozy mystery which that just sounds horrible yeah it says doesn't it Ugh. well it's it's mostly there just as a as a marketing tool to make sure that if you know someone comes in and they like a certain writer you can take a look at the spine and see where the publisher has put it and then you know kind of this is where you can start because todd knows this probably better than i do having a lot more years you know book selling than i did was that you get people in there and they've got a thing man and that's their thing, and they don't like going outside of their yeah. thing. Publishers know what color to make the jacket cover right. for that thing. <clears throat> yep. Because you wouldn't want a cozy mystery person picking up an Elroy novel. <laughs> that might not end well. Yeah. A Florida novel is going to have a yellow or an orange jacket cover. It's going to have a palm tree on it. <laughs> it's going to have a palm tree on it. <laughs> or a shark. <laughs> Does it go as far as most cozy mysteries are going to be in the first person. Most police procedurals are omniscient. Is that even something that is part of the dividing line? I think they can switch it up as far as that goes. It just it depends on... We're talking about the way the bookstores organize it or the way publishers organize it. Oh, God, this is complicated. Yeah. Yeah, so... And we as writers kind of purposely disorganize it. I mean, that's why I have been talking to genre people, why I've had an ongoing conversation, not only with Todd, but a friend of mine, uh, Jen Zukowski from graduate school, who's big into the sci-fi fantasy thing and and arguing and negotiating about what makes good literature in that genre as opposed to bad stuff. Right. And I mentioned Lawrence Osborne earlier, and let's just think about Osborne for a minute alongside, say, a Scott Phillips character. Both, uh, just to get us up to speed, a Lawrence Osborne's character, Lord Doyle, in A Ballad of a Small Player. Mm-hmm. His character, first-person narrator, he's a con man. He's a gambler who will steal from people to get money to go gamble and lose. <laughs> By any stretch, he could, be, he could be over in the crime fiction category. Right. 
yet he tends to get shelved in just the fiction category. Mm-hmm. So there's something going on ultimately in the in the Osborne novel that's driving it a, a different direction than, say, Phillips's con man, who's got uh, the same... He's got the first-person narrative thing going on. Right. He might steal from people, and very similar things are happening, yet ultimately the stories are doing something just a little bit different, I guess, to drive them in different directions. For whatever reason, we don't think of the Osborne as a genre story. Right. Why Why do you think that is? What's, hmm. Why do you personally, Todd, think that is? Because I haven't read Osborne, so I can't... I would say that what happens to Lord Doyle in The Ballad of a Small Player, it tends to be resolved. Um, he's he's in a different he's in a different place uh, spiritually than he was at the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. and that seems to be the the driving driving thing in the story. Uh, it's so not the, an easy thing to to, right. to pin down, though. That's interesting. Though. So the 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 because you know they always say that you know with with fiction there's some type of change or resolution that needs to happen. So like with a, with Scott Phillips, it's not necessarily a change of heart or philosophy within the character, but they resolve the problem they've been trying to resolve throughout the book. And so what Osborne is doing is maybe there is that philosophical, spiritual, internal, personal shift that's going on that's more important than you know solving whatever problem he has. Yes, his character has hit the sort of the emotional spiritual skids and he at the beginning of the okay. book and he's on the he's on the downward trend right. and he just keeps going down. There are reversals along right. the way but so it's like an anti-redemption type of thing. You can read it that way although it's <laughs> it's more comp- it's it's right. more complicated than that which right. is why we like it. Right, and why it's stuck in that section and not in right. history. Okay. You can so read the, the ending different ways. Okay. The existential again. Yes. Okay. And that was sort of our, our thesis that we started with when we were having the discussion was that the idea that the existential mm-hmm. approach is going to lead you to a possibly, potentially more literary, um, at least interesting literary work right. than the other two. So then if you do start off, so then basically a blending of, of these would be taking your professional or your personal type of story and making it existential in order to give it a little bit more depth or resonance. And it's when they do that that we tend to move it out of strict genre and into something better, or is that not kind of where we're... I think it's still possible to have the the depth and resonance in a conventional detective story. Mm-hmm. It just depends on what what the writer wants to do or succeeds with. Right. But we kind of had trouble naming a, a modern Chandler. I mean, Chandler sort of sort of spaced off that territory, and part of the reason I think he, he still occupies is, is it, there's a certain naivete <laughs> to Chandler uh, about ideals mm-hmm. that maybe modern writers don't have anymore. And, and, I mean, he's just there, and I don't know that anybody well, can ever do Chandler. I don't. And that's part of it. I think is it worth trying? You don't want to do Chandler. You want to be the writer wants to be standalone and right. and have a signature style and approach. And so if we try to put everybody with Chandler in a way, it's unfair to the following writers. But right. yeah. and then but, you're just going to end up 
doing Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would be easy, easy to do a, a humorous take on Chandler. One thing that Chandler did really well that even the uh, contemporary writers, I was, I was struggling before we started this to think of writers who do this as well as, as Chandler did, was the, the criminal, the transgressor with shifting identities and disguises. Mm-hmm. Chandler did that very well in several of his books. And, I, you know, even the, the contemporary writers who are really good at plot and coming up with these intricate stories for the detective to unravel, I'm, I was just at a loss to find, find Chandler's signature uh, plot device, which is this character who appears to be someone in an earlier part of the book, and then midway through the book, they're different. And at the end... Mar- one of the, the ways that Marlowe has resolved the story is he's figured out, oh, this person was someone else right. back here, thinking of the lady in the lake, for one. And I think Lennox even is going to change identities on us somewhere in this long goodbye. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's good stuff. It's, it's a good lead-in spot and a, and a place, I think, to, to drop it since our next episode is going to be Chandler. We're going to dive right into that, and we're going to do a whole one on, on him. So I think this is great. I think uh, we've got a good footwork. We've done the good footwork. We're in a right, a good place. I'm looking forward to it. So next time we're going to have uh, the long goodbye, correct, Raymond Chandler, yeah. and we'll nail it down then in a few weeks. Anything? Any last minute words, comments? Uh, Want to throw a, a wrench into the uh, into the plans as far as uh, thinking about it? Because I. I'm willing to f- go. I think we're all in the same place with Chandler, aren't we, where we sort of put him as pretty high in the pantheon, so yeah. starting with him makes some I think sense. we are. I think when we, when we started talking about Chandler, I mentioned that John Gardner thing. What is it about the first-person narrator that that works, and he's got to be interesting enough that we want to follow him around? Right. And can that... How does that apply to a detective novel with a first-person narrator? That might be something that we talk about. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you, guys. That was a great conversation. Thank you. The Outrider Podcast is hosted by me, Jason Quinn Malott, and produced by Heather Ann Eden. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and go there to please rate us and give us a review, or you can get the show straight from our host, podbean.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.